How do we respond to Jesus' love? Before I get into that, let me just make one word of comment. You probably expected a little bit earlier. But uh, as many of you know, some of you I haven't even met, uh, I was away on vacation. Let me just pass a couple of quick comments on that. I believe that being away on vacation like that is good for a number of reasons and a number of situations. One is it's good for me to get the break uh, from the schedule and so forth and so on. But secondly, it is very good for you as an assembly. You probably are rejoicing in it anyway, but whether you are or you're not, it is very good for you. It is good for you to hear other men of God preach the word of God. And I thank God for those who were here and filled the pulpit and the confidence that I had. That was one of the joys. I was with several different people while I was gone, and I shared that. I had such confidence of knowing that God's in control of this church and those that were speaking, I was just thrilled to have speaking. So the young people at night who are leading our young people and the guest speakers in the morning, and I spoke to Ken Myers who was away and Bob Emily and so forth. Bob was kind of funny. He said, it's going to take you three months to undo what I did. I said, no, not worried about that at all. But it is good for you as a congregation to hear from different voices rather than hearing from the same voice all the time from the Word of God. So I'm encouraged by that. And very thankful, never am I concerned, because this is God's church, not any man's church. All right, in saying that, now let's get back to where we were, in case you forgot. And uh, I'll remind you tonight where we are, too. We are in the book of John, okay? And recent events that have come up, let's just remind ourselves. Lazarus has been recently, in chapter 11, raised from the dead. This was one of the major signs in the book of John. It is the seventh sign that he has presented in his book, Why? in consistency with his purpose, that is, he's presented these signs, including the resurrection of Lazarus, so that people would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in that, they might have life through his name. And by the way, uh, for those who have come why I haven't been here, and I don't know you, that's the only way you get life. You can only possibly get eternal life through Jesus Christ. It comes no other way. It doesn't come through religion. It doesn't come through this church. It doesn't come through holy people. It doesn't come through pastors, priests, rabbis, or any other source. It only comes through Jesus Christ. He is the one that was sent by God. He is the one that provides salvation and only him. Yet for the most part, believe it or not, his ministry, while he's done all these miracles, including raising one for the dead, from man's perspective, has been a failure. You say, what are you talking about? We're in chapter 12. Just look at chapter 12, verse 31, I think it is. Yes, 31 for a second. Look, these things spoke, Jesus spoke. We'll get there eventually. And he went away, and he hid himself from them. Well, now watch. Uh, that's verse 36 I was reading. Oh, sorry. That, that, I think, is the verse I wanted, though. Uh, 37, sorry. But though he had performed so many signs, that included the resurrection, before them, yet they were not believing in him. You would think with all these signs that happened, everybody would flock to him. While even in our current text, there are a number of people that are coming. Some of them are just out of curiosity. But from man's perspective, he's done all of these miracles, and for all intents and purposes, it's basically been a failure, though some have come to believe on him. In fact, as we ended chapter 11, the Jewish leaders are increasing their intensity on killing him. Look at verse 53 of chapter 11. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Verse 57. 
Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. They are increasing the intensity of wanting to put Christ to death. You would think after the resurrection of Lazarus that would change, but it hadn't. So what had taken place? Jesus had withdrawn from them. Look at verse 54 of chapter 11. Therefore Jesus no longer continued walking uh, to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from them, uh, went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. For all intensive purposes, his, his public ministry, though not entirely, but his public ministry has basically been finished. There's a few more things that are going to happen. I'll mention them this morning. But basically, he is now focused on and moving toward his crucifixion. And so his public ministry is coming to an end, though not totally. Now, before we come to chapter 12, as you and I read our English Bibles, if we're reading through an account like John, we read chapter 11, verse uh, 57, and then jump into chapter 12, verse 1, and we wonder, did anything happen in between? Yes, a lot has happened. Before you come to chapter 12, other things have happened, though they're not recorded in John's account. As we compare to the other gospel accounts, in fact, Jesus spent some time, very brief as it is, up in Samaria and up in Galilee. And as you look at the various accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the longest and most detailed of the accounts is found in Luke. And I'm going to look at just a couple of things to show you what fits in between here briefly this morning because it is very important, I believe, personally, to this text. And you'll see that, I hope, this morning. But uh, you'll notice, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 12, which is the next text, that that is going to begin his triumphant entry of of what we know as Palm Sunday. That is when he comes in and he's announced as Hosanna, the king of the Jews, and so forth. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's going to happen next. But before that, we have this supper. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 17 for just a moment. Luke chapter 17. I want you to see what comes before chapter 12, where we are. In Luke chapter 17, or to see the chronology, if you look at verse 11, watch. It says, while he was on his way to Jerusalem. That's what's happening in chapter 12. Now notice, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So he goes there. Now go down to chapter 19 for a second of Luke and look at verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And then what you've got is the triumphant entry beginning in verse 29, which is where John 12, 12 is. So everything between just in Luke's account alone, in chapter 17, 18, and 19 basically as a whole, takes place before we get to John chapter 12. Why bring that up? Here's why. Here are some of the events that take place after he has raised Lazarus from the dead and he goes back with his disciples to be alone and carries on a ministry before he comes in to the supper that we're about to address in chapter 12. One of the events that takes place right there in Luke chapter 17 is the cleansing of the ten lepers. Now hold on to that. Remember, he cleansed ten lepers. One of them is a Samaritan. Nine of them don't even give thanks. Only one comes back and gives thanks. You're familiar with the story. That takes place. 
The blessing of the children where he says, suffice children to come to me, that we're very familiar with. That takes place before he gets to Jerusalem in John chapter 12. The rich young ruler that comes to him, remember? And he wouldn't give up his possessions and so forth. That's important to our text again. That has already transpired where the rich young ruler has come to him and he could not give up his possessions to follow Jesus Christ. That was the straw that would break the camel's back. He then talks of his death and resurrection. Again, very important to our context this morning. Before he gets to Jerusalem, he talks specifically to his disciples and those who have known them, though he's already done it, he does it again, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He also heals another blind man. That's accounted in chapter 18. But another story you're familiar with is Zacchaeus. The kids always sing about that. That takes place between the resurrection of Lazarus and chapter 12, verse 1 of John. So those are just some of the things that we're familiar with that take place before Jesus actually comes to this meal. But John is going to pick it up at the meal in John chapter 12, and he's going to concentrate the remainder of the book now, that's almost half of the book that's still left. He spent 11 chapters giving us seven signs. Now he's going to focus more than any other of the accounts in the gospel. The second half of his book, basically, on the cross and what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish and what's going to take place. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time on that as we move ahead. I want to say something else on this text before I actually exegete it to you. In chapter 12, go back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, in this text, verses 1 through 11, who is the focal point of attention? It is not Lazarus. Remember, that was not the case in chapter 11. Nor is it, I just again consulted another commentary this morning, it is not Mary. Almost every commentary I read said Mary is the focus of attention. It is not. Jesus Christ, again, is the focus of attention because it's changing his ministry toward the crucifixion. And it's preparing him for the burial. Yes, we're going to talk about Mary. Yes, we're going to talk about Lazarus. Yes, we're going to talk about Judas. But don't lose focus. This whole center of this gospel is on Jesus Christ. So what happens? Verse 1. Let's get the background of what's going on. As we pick it up in verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. This is six days before the Passover, okay, which is going to be his last Passover when we get that. And I'll leave that to chapter 13 because we'll address it more there. It is probably, if you take the time, probably a Friday night that we're dealing with here, the week before his crucifixion. And he's in the place of Bethany, close to Jerusalem. Lazarus is there. However, contrary to, again, many commentaries I read, I do not believe that the feast is at the home of Lazarus. You say, well, Lazarus is there, Mary's there, Martha is there, they're serving. First of all, immediate context, you notice that Lazarus is simply referred to as one that is also at the table. Verse 2, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Well, then where is he? Go back with me to Mark chapter 14. Stay with me. Mark chapter 14 the importance of comparing Scripture with Scripture and studying the entire Word of God. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 3. While he was in Bethany, watch this, 
at the home of who? Simon the leper. And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, etc. But what I want you to see there, and keep your finger in mark, I'll go back there one more time later. Okay, what I want you to see, this is probably not Lazarus' home. Why? Because the scripture says it's not. When you compare Ma Matthew and Mark's account with John's account, it's the same thing, and he is probably uh, at the home of whom? Not probably, but is it the home of whom? A leper. Now, obviously, there's some things here. The leper's been healed. Because if he was not in a healed state, he couldn't go there. Neither could his disciples go there. In fact, the leper would be cast out so that he would be seen as unclean. Why is that important? Well, I don't know, and there's no way of knowing for sure, but remember the account I just gave you? There's a possibility that that leper who was healed is the one that's putting on the feast for him. Now, even if it's not that leper, it's certainly Simon the leper that's putting the feast on for him or putting the meal on because it's in his home. And Lazarus and his family is joining in to that feast. But what has happened is he certainly has healed ten lepers and he's healed this particular leper that's having the feast for him. So the occasion is not John chapter 11. Though that is true, they're still rejoicing in Lazarus being healed. The occasion is that the leper is hosting it out of appreciation, and John is also joining in, as well as the sisters, in appreciation what Christ has done for them in this situation. So it's probably more the appreciation or a combined, if you will, like we would do, a combined celebration of how the leper's been healed and he wants to show his appreciation by hosting Jesus Matthew did the same thing, did he not? He hosted tax collectors and had them come and join in uh, to meet Jesus and so forth and to show his appreciation. So some things to think about. Now, what has happened? Now, whether or not this is that 10th leper that came back and was thankful, we can't be positive. I, I say there's a good probability, even though he was from Samaria, that he's now in Bethany, and this is where he is. But... This leper is certainly appreciative. So Lazarus is appreciative of what Christ has done for him. He's done what? Raised him from the dead. This leper is appreciative. Why? Because he's been healed. Mary and Martha are appreciative. Why? Their prayers have been answered. God has answered their prayers through Jesus Christ. And many others had witnessed the miracles, including the disciples. And so this feast, if you will, or this supper and dinner, it would have been a formal meeting in the evening. That's what it's referring to in verse 2. They made a supper for him. And we see the condition. How did they respond to the love that Christ had? That's what I want you to see here this morning. There's a lot of things we can see from this text. But this man's been healed. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Martha and Mary have had their prayers answered. The disciples have seen everything that Jesus has been doing. They've been walking with him. And so how did they express that? Before I go on, I want to ask you a question. How do you express your love for Christ? Christ expressed his love in dying on the cross. If you've trusted in Christ this morning and partook of this, this morning's uh, reminder in the communion service, Christ has done something significant for you. He's died for your sins. You have forgiveness of sins. You have the gift of eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's his expression of love. How much do you love him? 
How do we respond? I want to look at this text, as you see in your outline. There's three different responses that I see that happen here. Number one, there's what I call the superficial response. It may not be so superficial to you, but I think when you take the whole, it really is. What is it? They put on a dinner. Verse 2, they made him a supper. What do you got? You've got Martha that's serving. There's nothing wrong with that. He does not rebuke her here. That was her custom. She would always be willing to serve, always would be willing to help out, always be willing to take actions. Lazarus is there. They're appreciative. The disciples are there. And they put on a feast, and you might say that's an expression of their love. Of course it is. But that's as far as it went. It went as far as I can do something and maybe even put on a meal for you or get involved. That's my expression of love. It's going to be someone that goes a lot deeper than that. It was very superficial. He doesn't rebuke her. There's nothing wrong with what she's done. There's nothing wrong with what they've done. I'm not saying that at all. But all he did was put on a meal. And I've got to believe, as I observe Christianity in my own life sometimes, that that's sometimes us. We appreciate what Christ has done for us. But sometimes, believers, that's as far as it goes. Maybe they attend church. Maybe occasionally read their Bible. Maybe occasionally we'll go to some events if it's convenient. Maybe occasionally we'll serve as long as it's not going to interrupt my schedule. There are many professing believers like that. They express their love to, for Christ in superficial ways. That's all. They belong to Christ, but do they really see it that way? And I want us to challenge ourselves, just having observed communion this morning. God's timing. I had nothing to do with, I came back and asked that we have in communion Sunday. So I did not plan it this way. That was God's ordained purpose this morning, to have communion at the same time. He knew the text I was in. And we look at this text, and I want you to ask yourself, what is the extent of my love for Christ? Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself as belonging to him? He owns you. He owns me. Everything about me. If you've come to Christ, that's true. You are part of the body of Christ. That's not secondary. I'm talking universal. We are part of the body of Christ if we've trusted in Him. We are not our own. We are part of a local church. People have all kinds of problems. Maybe I need to speak on this sometime with the concept of church membership. If you have a problem with that, the thinking is your problem. Because everywhere in the New Testament, it was ordained without calling it church membership for people to be in the local church to receive the word of God and worship God together. But people today, it's profession of Christ and I'm going to do things my way. Hold on. Oh, we appreciate salvation. But I don't know how far it's going to go. That's called, in my opinion, and for this purpose this morning, superficial appreciation for the love of Christ and superficial love for him. What is the temperature of your love for Christ? Well, let's take a look. And why did I say that about Martha and the disciples? 
you're going to see, everybody knows about Lazarus, but when I compare with Mark, that's why I told you to keep your finger there, you're going to find out the disciples went right along with Lazarus and said, yeah, that's right. Why aren't we selling this for the poor? Notice the difference. You want to see what sacrificial love for Christ looks like? Take a look at verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now that's not a long verse. Not a very difficult verse at all. This is the third time we are brought to Mary. All three times in Scripture, once in Luke, now in John, and before in John chapter 11, we always find Mary worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Interesting. What you've got as a picture here is absolute, total love for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no limits with Mary. None. She's not hindered in any way. This is what true worship is. Now let me get something straight in your thinking. We are all right now worshiping Christ. And you've been worshiping Christ, whether you know it or not, with everything you've done this morning. With our prayers, with our singing, with our giving, with our fellowshipping with one another, with our partaking of the communion service. And if you haven't been a part of it, you just missed out on what worship is about. But it takes place seven days a week. It's not just coming together. We have the privilege of coming together on Sunday to do it collectively. Worship is an ongoing thing that happens every day. And I know you know that. I'm speaking to the choir. But we need to see it that way. And you need to see the extent of what our love should be for Christ because of what he has done for us. And each one of us standing right here in the pulpit needs to examine if this is the type of love that I have for Christ. Her life is totally committed. She knew in her heart what Christ had done for her, not just for Lazarus, not just for the leper. She knew what he did for her soul, for her heart. And what does she do? She gives of herself totally, absolutely totally to Christ. She is involved, get this, in giving, not taking. Think about that. When a person professes faith in Christ, we have a tendency that I've got heaven. I've got blessing. I've got answer to prayer. Those things are true and they're good. Don't take me wrong. I go to the local church. What can Pastor Dan give me today? Wrong approach. I go to an event. What can I get out of that event? What type of ministry can I get out of the teens? What can I get out of whether they got a good nursery or not? What can I get out of? Mary's not that way at all. That's superficial love. Sacrificial love is the type of love that Christ gave for us. Total giving. Giving of ourselves totally. And Mary sits at his feet and gives Totally. How? First of all, with possessions. Possessions. 
That's practical. This has nothing to do with our finances, by the way. Nothing. If you're a visitor here today and you say, oh, here we go, the church is going to be involved in all these fundraisers and so forth. No, Fellowship Bible Church is not that way. We're going to tell you something. There's a lot of Christians that all they do is give the extra to the Lord. Whatever, whatever I can fit into my budget, I'll throw the Lord's way. That should never be a person's giving. Your giving to the Lord, even financially, should be absolutely sacrificial because of his love. It's got nothing to do with Fellowship Bible Church. Nothing to do with us. It's a very expensive gift. She doesn't give the leftovers. She doesn't even give a drop of this bottle. I want you to see that. And I won't spend the time. I've done the research on it, but just we could spend all morning on that. On this gift, this is a very expensive bottle, first of all, and she breaks it. This is something that you would go, now I'm not, you ladies can have some fun with this. I am not a perfume expert by any means. I mean, I get shocked when I go into the mall, I go into Jordan's and so forth, and they'll have this bottle about this big and so forth. Oh, man, that smells good. How much is that? $65. What? What's in there that makes it $65? Well, this is very expensive. And when the more expensive they are, sometimes they're packaged in a box and put in a thing. We understand that. That's the concept here. This isn't a special vial. The number one, when it's empty, would be kept on a shelf because that's a souvenir of how great it is. She breaks it. Then, if you bought something like that with, let's say it's $200 at the mall and took it home, I would venture to guess that you'd be little drop, you know, like this. You wouldn't take the bottle and say, hey, let's just go pour it here and there. It's not going to happen. Now, how expensive is this? By the way, with the word that's used there, it was a very rare, though there's question about exactly what the word means, a very rare perfume, number one. And number two, the cost of it, as it goes on even in our own text, is about the equivalent of one year's wages. I don't care what your salary is. Take one year's wages and put it in a bottle. And she takes the whole bottle. And by the way, how big is it? The closest way I can relate to you, they say 12 ounces, 13, some say 18 ounces and so forth. Bottom line, think of a water bottle that we all go walking around with today. That's about the size of this. And she takes the whole thing and dumps it. You're talking about a whole year's wages. And you're talking about disciples who gave up everything. They haven't got any funds. She doesn't care. She knows what Christ has done for her. She's not holding back on her worldly possessions because of the fact that I've got to get by in life. She knows that the one who is just Give, about to give his life for her and the one who loves her is more important than anything this world can offer. Is that the way you and I approach our finances and our possessions? My guess starting in the pulpit is absolutely no. Now, in case you're going to walk out this morning and say, Pastor Dan wants us to sell everything we got. He even said that on the, on the uh, responsive reading. No, you're missing the whole point. If God asked that of you, would you? Are you ready to give him the best? She wanted him to have the best for her, his burial. No leftovers. The best. And again, I say with your possession, that's the way you should give. You should give of the best to the master first. 
You examine your own heart. I don't know what anybody is in this church, and I rejoice in that, even with finances and possessions. That's between you and the Lord. But if you're not giving your best to the Lord first, you're not where your heart should be in appreciation for his love for you. It's more. It's not just possessions. She gave of herself. How do you do with your time and yourself? What do you mean she gave of herself? She does something which is outrageous. What are you talking about? She not only took the, and by the way, if you compare the accounts, she poured it on his head and she poured it on his feet. She used it all. I've walked into situations where this much perfume and a, a lady will come by and she knocks you over. She just put a couple of drops. You can imagine why they said it filled the whole room. They must have been knocked over and out by the smell of this perfume. Seriously. That's why it says what it does. It's very practical. But I, want, I don't want to miss the point. Her love is so great. It's the, the most expensive possession I can get. And by the way, she is doing this for his burial because this is going to be his anointing. But she wants the best given to him, and she just pours it all out on him. That's love. And then she does something that's outrageous. Jewish women, according to even 1 Corinthians, their hair is their glory. And a Jewish woman would never, ever, ever go out in public and let her hair down. In fact, if she did, she was looked at as potentially an immoral woman. She could care less what anybody thinks of her. She doesn't even take a towel. The wiping of a person's feet the disciples didn't even do this to Jesus Christ. Remember, he's going to do it to them. They don't do it to him. Unbelievable. She doesn't even have a towel. She uses her glory, if you will, of her person. She's going to be looked at, if you will, almost as a prostitute by what she's doing. But her love is so great that she doesn't care about her reputation. She doesn't care about her life. What she knows is her life belongs to God. And her love is so great that it's sacrificial, she'll give up her reputation. How many of you are scared of what your relatives, friends, neighbors, people at work are going to think about you and you won't even talk about Christ because you're concerned about that? She doesn't care. She knows what she's got. Do we realize what Christ has done for us? Has Christ really got my life? Has he got your time? Has he got your energy so that you realize you've been bought with a price? Or me? Pastor Chris said it's decisions we make. It's true. Not just for sin. We make decisions so that we keep Christ. I'll come to serve you. I'll come to do what I want to do when it works out on my timetable. That's not the way Mary looked at this at all. At all. She worshipped the Lord with all she had. Her possessions, her reputation, her whole person. She knew that she was internally, excuse me, eternally, eternally indebted to the one who was sitting at this table and the one whose honor this supper was. the one that we just sat at his table and honored him in remembrance, we are eternally indebted to. 
whether you've got one more day on this earth or 100 years. If you're professing Christ, he owns you. You belong to him. And Christ so loved the world that he spared no sacrifice to die for enemies. And we're worried about the little things of life as to whether we'll even love him and serve him. What a rebuke to my soul. She gave sacrificial. True love for Christ, true love as a Christian, is when we give. Listen, when you come to a service like this, come to give. I'm not just talking financially. Come to give your heart. Sing with joy. You say, I can't sing the songs. Why? Well, some of them are so old-fashioned. So what? Look at the contents of the word. There's heritage there. Well, some of them are too upbeat. It's new. So what? Look at the content of them. That song you just sang was a contemporary song. Praise the Lord for that song. It gets me thinking on what he did for me. Come to give. Come to give your life. When you come to church, don't just come to get. Don't just go to a, a camp out to get. Don't just go to the nursery to get or a service to get. Give. Why? Because of what Christ did for us. Do we give that way? And then there's the common one, and that's the giving, I mean the taking, and that's the selfishly, verses 4 to 6. Obviously. They were superficial in that they gave a dinner, but there was a right, real deep one in verse 3. She gave her life. She gave her possessions. Verses 4 to 6, we see the selfishness. And oh, how I love these verses in this sense. We see that Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, watch. He was intending to betray him. And literally what that's dealing with, he was looking for the ways. He knew what the, the leaders wanted. He wanted to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He was trying to find out how best to do it. He's contemplating doing that. And he is the one that sounds good. There are so many Christians in this area. Notice what he says. The intent of his heart is betrayal. Why was not the perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You ready for this? I've heard this many times as a pastor. Why don't we just give more to missions? Why don't we just sell everything? We don't need a building. We don't need property. Uh, let me ask you, did you sell your property and give it to the poor? Well, I've got to live there. Oh. Do you go to the mission field? There's people that are on fire for missions, and they won't even go visit a mission field. They won't even. I just talked to the kids this, this week in school. I was rejoicing with the kids. Several of the kids have been on missions trips. Have you been on a missions trip? But you think missions are the thing to give to? And give everything? Good talk. No action. Where are we at? Now, we know the context because God gives it to us. He didn't say this because he was really concerned about the poor. And that would be my question to you. If that's your attitude, then go give to the poor. All of it. If that's what you expect us to do. Or get involved. What happened here, but because he was a thief. Interesting context there, too. He had the money box. And uh, the, it's the imperfect tense that's used in one of the verbs here. I believe he was continuously taking from the box. 
and nobody knew it. They didn't suspect him. He had a good line. He was with them, but his heart was so far from God. Let me ask you, what goes on in business? What goes on behind the scenes? I will never forget this. I just relayed this story to somebody while I was on vacation because it's a true story, and it happened to me. As some of you know, I was in accounting. I'll give it to you very quick. I was in accounting, and I was asked to take care of somebody's books who was not a believer, who I knew, and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do that and so forth. And the bottom line is he was also getting advice from another quote-unquote Christian. And after I did these things, he came to me and he said, uh, hey, my taxes are too high. I'm paying too much taxes. I said, really? I said, well, that's the way it works out. He said, well, he said so-and-so, and he named the individual. I knew them. And he said, so-and-so said, pay the people under the table. I said, what? He said, oh, this is a true story. He said, pay the people. This was a Christian advising him. Pay them cash under the table, and you don't have to pay Uncle Sam. I said, what? I dropped that person as a client. By the way, that person was a relative. Everything I was doing and witnessing to them, the person who had come out to church was destroyed by another Christian paying under the table. Are you kidding me? Why get in there? Just like Judas Iscariot. Oh, verbiage is good. I belong to Christ. I do this. And the whole life has got nothing to do with following Christ whatsoever. You see? What am I getting at? What are we driving at? This point is we say we love Christ. How do we love him? All he wanted to do was get. He didn't want to give. And it affected others. I said, Mark, let me read it to you. Mark chapter 14, verse 4 says this. I'll read it quick. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why was this perfume wasted? Who's there? Everybody that appreciates what Christ had done, the disciples, and now they're all caught in what Judas Iscariot is saying. And they're saying, yeah, why didn't we give this to the poor? And what happens is when somebody's heart is not right, that's including me, or your heart before the Lord, even as professing Christians, it's interesting, we start to draw others in the wrong direction. Because we lose focus of the overall picture of what we're supposed to be doing for Christ. And that's what happened in this text. In this text, you get a leper who is healed, who wants to serve Christ. You get Lazarus, and one bad apple came along, and it's Judas Iscariot, whose heart was wrong, but his profession sounded good. You know the story. We haven't gotten there yet. Even the disciples didn't know that he was the betrayer because he looked good on the outside. But bottom line, he was a taker, a taker, a taker, a taker, a taker. He didn't love Christ at all. And a taker doesn't love Christ. Because we ought to love others as Christ loved us. And that is a giver. That's Mary. There is nothing held back. What are we holding back? Time? Service? Possessions? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I was challenged by it myself. You know, in the concept here, and by the way, let me give it to you quick. In verse 7, Jesus said, let her, know, let her alone. It's a very difficult text, actually, verse 7. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This was for the day of his burial. He's not talking in the future sense. What he was saying, let her alone. She's doing it for my burial. Why? They commonly anointed the body for the burial. They didn't do as the Egyptians did and mummify afterwards. They prepared it with, and if you remember, the women are going to be going to the grave, but they never get there because he's resurrected. 
This is the actual preparation for his burial. Now, little opinion of mine. I personally believe there's a possibility based on that language and based on comparing the texts that the only one that realized what she was doing, most commentaries don't think she knew what she was doing, and he just says prophetically, it's for my burial. Well, he does say it's for his burial. But I also think that Mary possibly had the, the understanding. She heard what Jesus said about his burial because it, we could find that in the texts, and she believed it. She was the only one that knew that's where he's going. He's going to the cross. Even the disciples didn't catch it. They're going to scatter. Mary's not going to scatter. Mary's love for the Lord is preparing him without any concern for herself or cost. And it's interesting in verse 8. I'm going to have to stop after this verse today. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. I think we can all learn from that. You know, again, the concept of going to missions and so forth, there's always an opportunity to serve. But the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry on earth was very short. He's only a week away from his death, a little bit more, but just about a, a week away from his death. And what he was trying to say, even in that one verse, I believe, is this. Get your priorities right. You say you're concerned for the poor, and you don't even see that your heart needs to be poor in relationship to the one who's standing in front of you. You've got it wrong. Surface. Giving or taking. How much do we love the Lord? And again, in the text, that's what you've got. You've got Mary who gave her all. She's there to serve the Lord. Martha served the Lord too, yes. Lazarus was there. Praise the Lord for that. Yes, Judas Iscariot, who is the one that's going to betray him, turns everybody against the Lord, okay, because they're not in the right place that they should be. But right there in the heart of it, verse 3, is where the true sacrificial love for the Lord Jesus Christ is found. What area of our life? I have to ask myself, am I a Christian who appreciates what Christ has done for me? And I'm thankful, but I'll only go so far. Are you that way? Or are we truly seeing ourselves as Christ truly bought me? Whatever he asks. If he asks me to go to the mission field, I'll go. If he asks me just to serve on my job and be a testimony for Christ and witness to others, I'll do it. If he asks for all of my possessions, he can have it. When I go to give, I'm not going to give the leftover. I'll give him the first. When I go to serve, I'll give him my best, not to just do the job. I'm fascinated by that as a believer, honestly. You know me. It doesn't matter whether it's sports, it's the pulpit. I pour my life into whatever I'm doing, and I give it my all. That's just part of my makeup. Is that the way you live your Christian life? Or is it that, well, if I'm sweeping the floor, as long as I get most of the crumbs, I'm okay. Missing the point. This isn't serving Fellowship Bible Church. You're serving the true living God who gave his life for you. How much do we love the Lord? Let's close in prayer. And Father and God, as I close in prayer this morning, I know my study over the last couple of months and even this week has been convicting. I know, Father, there are some in this room that have not yet come to trust in Christ. They haven't understood the love of the Lord Jesus Christ or the need to believe on him.
And I thank you and praise you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I pray that you'd open up their understanding that they might believe on him and have eternal life. But Father, in this audience, there are many of us who profess faith in Christ. And we're thankful, we're appreciative of eternal life. There's no doubt about that. But Father, are we really sold out in our love for you as you are for us? Oh, Father, help us to love you as we ought to, with all that we have, with all of our being. Help us to have a life of service, not a life of getting. Help us, Father, when things are contrary to our own thinking, to be willing to take what the Word of God gives us. Oh, Father, we thank you that you went to no expense to love us, even to the of sending your son to the cross. There was no cost or concern. You wanted to love us even unto the end, and we thank you that you did. Father, help us to love you the same way. What have we got but this one life that's been bought by you anyway? And help us to love you in such a way that others notice it and others are attracted to that. And I pray, Father, in those areas where we are even superficial and our motives are not what they should be, and we draw others away from even worshiping you the way they should. Help us to recognize that. and Help us, as David said, to have our spirit renewed, to have the joy of our salvation restored, that we might just walk in a way that we love you as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.